0: this episode is sponsored by a donor to global wellness institute or gwi gwi is a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a mission to empower wellness worldwide by educating the public and private sectors about preventative health and wellness gwi's research programs and initiatives have been instrumental in the growth of the 4.5 trillion us dollar wellness economy and in uniting the health and wellness industries visit GlobalWellnessInstitute.org. On this episode, we have Ali Sherma. Ali was born in the U.S. and developed a strong sense for social justice on family trips to India from where her ancestors hail. She parlayed that early passion into not only becoming a physician, earning her M.D. at Cornell, but also pursuing graduate work in social policy and planning at the London School of Economics. After her residency in psychiatry at UCSF in Cornell and working in emergency psychiatry at Columbia University, she joined a Netherlands-based NGO and was placed in Afghanistan and Burundi to integrate mental health into primary care delivery. After returning to the U.S., she worked with marginalized communities in the South Bronx providing psychiatric services. She was also director of the Mental Health Service Corps under the Thrive NYC initiative. She has brought her mental health advocacy to two podcasts she has launched called Model Mentality and Coping with COVID-19 by Dr. Ali. Ali, thank you so much for being on our show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege.
2: No, it's really great to have you. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Um, you've got an amazing background and uh, the humanity that you show up in life with is just evident in so many different corners of of your life. And so I, I think it's going to be very inspirational for our audience. So I'm, I'm excited to, to get into it. Okay. Um, let's uh, start from the very beginning. Um, where <laughs> were you born?
1: I was born in Weymouth, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston. And my parents are from India. There's more of a history there, but I'm a first generation Indian American.
2: Right. right. Well, let's dive into that that history a little bit because I understand your uh, grandfather, maternal grandfather, was from Kabul.
1: Yeah, so this is something funny, and I don't know how my Indian family will react to this in real time. Uh, But when I was probably in my mid 20s, you know, and i had been doing a lot of traveling and global work. I had this memory of my grandfather, maternal grandfather, sitting on the roof of his house in Delhi and reading a newspaper, which looked like it was, you know, Arabic script. And I asked my mom, you know, like, what, what was he reading? Wait a minute. You know, I remember this because I was studying languages and whatnot. And she's like, oh yeah, he, he's from Kabul. And I'm like, okay, wait, but he's Indian. And so it, it and then I tried to probe and I've tried to understand, but there's a, it sounds like there's a complicated history there, you know, so essentially my mom is half Afghani, Afghani from Kabul. And then my father's uh, from Jandh, part of um, India that was ceded to Pakistan. Yeah, um, you know, around partition. So, so look, we're from the north, right? Hindustan. Right. Um, right.
2: Yeah, yeah well, exactly. Well, it was all the same. And my parent, uh, family has a similar history. Um, do you recall, is your grandfather also Pashto speaking?
1: I don't know. I probably, actually, I would imagine, but I, yeah,
2: I haven't asked that specifically. Is he still with you? Is he still alive?
1: No, no, he passed away when I was in high school.
2: Gotcha, okay.
1: Yeah, so I I think I didn't have the gall to, you know, ask the questions that I would like to now, right? I actually tried to ask the questions of my um, paternal grandmother who, you know, lived past 100 Wow. And I went over with my father to ask her some questions because I wanted to know what happened to his father and yeah. all the stuff, because there's all these stories around it and everything is fine. <laughs> so so I couldn't get, I couldn't really get, I tried. <laughs>
2: I couldn't get yeah, the story. Uh, um, I, empathize with that entirely. Um, I've also had tried to be detective and, and unpack certain untruths that were told or let's just say stories were romanticized. Mm-hmm. So I know that you moved around quite a bit while growing up. Um, how old were you when you left Massachusetts?
1: Oh, gosh, I don't even recall, but it was definitely probably under two years of life oh, wow. because my brother was born two and a half years after me in Philadelphia. So oh. we moved yeah, around every two years um, due to, you know, my father uh, moving up in his career, yeah. moving, you know, whether it's within companies or moving upwards in terms of opportunities. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's sort of a, that's another side of the story. You know, he really came to the U.S. with $500 in his pocket and a job, but nothing else, right? And Basin has really, you know, built his life and his legacy here, uh, which has always been an inspiration for me. You know, sort of the, the classic American dream, so to speak, yeah, sure. you know, and he's an engineer and an MBA and, there you, go. Uh, you know, uh, one of those like very mainstream pathways, also you know, in Indian culture. But um, he's been you know very successful and carved his own life. as entrepreneurial. My brother's entrepreneurial. So you know, but part of that is yeah, taking opportunities, taking risks, moving the family around, and of course that had psychological ramifications for me, but also created such a strong sense of resilience, right, and adaptability and any and flexibility in any situation probably has led to me being able to do what I do in my career um, because of it.
2: Well, that's really, uh, that makes complete sense. And that ties it so beautifully together. Um, Any resentment about having to move around so much
0: while growing up?
1: Oh, well, at the time, you know, like there were certain moves that were so hard. I mean, for example, there was one move in the eighth grade where like I had everything, you know, that's the critical formative age. Everything was going for me. I was lead in the play love to act i was mm. a cheerleader i had a great group of friends you know and just and i had only been there two years but it quickly created a a life that i loved and then then i get that conversation and we're moving again and i was like no and i went you know a little bit into like a dark space after that you yeah, know that was hard um there were other there were other moves that were really fun you know in contrast so yeah. It was good and bad, and I think it really uh, was tethered to the developmental age, right, where it's, puberty is harder, right, yeah, of course.
2: and all that, but. Yeah, so it feels like more of an adventure when you're, you're younger. Yeah,
1: yeah I think so, at certain times, you know, yeah. and it it's made me mobile, right, in my adult life to be able to go here and there, but there's a tension, right, because it makes me mobile, but it all, I also crave, um, having rooting or foundation somewhere course, and there's an inherent dichotomy in that, yeah. you know, so that's something I had to, Grapple with the last 15, 20 years. I mean, I'm That's now true. resolved it, but you know, it definitely came up as like a dilemma.
2: Yeah. You know? Well, in one of our conversations, I tried to convince you to move to LA, and you were pretty <laughs> adamant about New York as home.
1: <laughs> yeah. Look, New York is funny. I never. I came here for medical school. I went to Cornell on the Upper East Side, and I, I wanted to go to Cornell. That was my choice. And oh, nice. but. I struggled with the city at first, you know, because I've always grown up in a house and trees and there's nature around, more suburban upbringing. Um, But, you know, New York's hard if you don't have that balance of getting out um, versus staying in, for me, it didn't make sense. But then something happened, like year three, it just clicked, you know? And I've tried to leave too. I've left for Amsterdam for a couple of years. I left for San Francisco, I left for London. But I always get pulled back in. So it's become my home. Wow. And I found a great home in Brooklyn and a community here. So, yeah. Think, yep.
2: Ultimately, the community is what it's about. Uh, when you kind yeah. of find your tribe, um, uh, that, that is what is a big, big draw. Um, right. I, and when
1: you find like a place that you're like, I can live here for a long time, yeah. right? That's, that's the feeling. Yeah.
2: yeah. That's the quintessential definition of home.
1: yeah Yeah. do you have that fence in LA
2: you know it's it's grown on me I actually uh I I left New York kind of kicking and screaming um and um my first stop was actually San Francisco um where I was trying to be a venture capitalist and that was right around the time that uh dot com became dot bomb first go around back in 2000 and so um I didn't spend much time up there and then came down to, to LA. But I, I completely thought that I'd be back to New York uh, in, in two years. But then life kind of happened and got mm-hmm. settled and bought a place and had kids. Kids started school. At some point, I just became like, settled. This specifically came home. And it's been 20 years now. Um, but I still have this longing for New York. And I, I take my kids back as often as I can. We're there probably at least once a year um but uh would love to do it more <laughs> and and, and i fantasize about uh moving back I, I tease my daughter that if she gets into an east coast school then i'll just uh migrate to new york and and be near her <laughs> uh, yeah <of> <laughs> sometimes she thinks of that as a threat but absolutely like, <laughs> oh, your life um this is a great share about New York, and thank you for, for telling us uh, about that. But to, to go back a little bit to to childhood, um, just briefly, um, I, I love your comment about building resilience, and um, you certainly were, were very outgoing in terms of being the lead in the play and being a cheerleader, um, but I understand there's a great anecdote of how that uh, started even earlier uh, around kindergarten age, and I'd, I'd love for you to share that.
1: You and you're referring to the humanitarian lean that I told you about.
2: I, I kind of just this, you, you, you're very comfortable speaking in front of crowds is what I remember oh, and that okay, kind okay, of sorry, uh, Somewhere else.
1: Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I, so, I want to hear
2: about that too. <laughs>
1: okay. Yeah, that, that, that actually is a kind of a critical piece, but I will. Okay. The first one yeah. is I was, yeah, I was telling you that for some reason, and maybe this is the way I'm wired because it, it just felt natural, like inherently natural, intrinsically natural. Uh, I haven't ever really had a difficulty or anxiety with public speaking. It's felt like a very natural thing. And, mm. you know, in kindergarten, in my um, public school, this was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, wow, we I'm had sure. to do our first presentation, which it seems early actually now looking back <laughs> to prepare a presentation, it had to be um, a couple of minutes and you had to pick your favorite animal. So my favorite animal it was and is a cheetah because of the speed and agility. And so I prepared this you know, presentation on the cheetah. And I remember even at that point, like working on my lines and memorizing the whole thing. And, and so I got up there and I just did it and it was filmed and they were giving us feedback. And I was very young to do that, uh, but I think it was in this like, gifted track or something right, so right. um yeah you, so you didn't I, have
2: a powerpoint presentation did you? <laughs> no i did okay, not have. I no but we had
1: those do you remember right? that slide projector where you oh would like oh my god <laughs>
2: yes absolutely clear
1: slide yeah oh, and it would project okay. yeah there was that because i had a picture of
2: that makes sense.
1: yeah but it was so natural and i i remember getting the feedback that oh you memorized your lines that's great and you didn't feel how did you feel I was like fine it was fun and like I remember people thinking it was unusual and I was thinking well I just felt okay but then my classmates were not having the same experience and were stumbling over their words and like that's the, the first moment I remember <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: exactly the tears and you know I started acting also in middle school and I was telling you I got sort of getting like a lot of leads and things and of course that got broken when I had another move. So there's discontinuity and fragmentation and things because of our life. But, you know, that has manifested. And so in a way it's no, although it's taken a long time to come to this in a way, it's no surprise that I'm now being a little bit, you know, trying to be a little more public and speaking about mental health and, and podcast and other ways, so.
2: Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. it's an amazing mission that you're on and it's going to heal a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, So thank goodness for that teacher uh who uh, brought that or, or gave you the first uh, that platform it was in you she just gave you the platform to to be able to express it um you referred to a humanitarian experience and i know that's a very big theme in in your work and your life so um sounds like we, you have a sense of where the, the the roots of that came from so please do mm-hmm. share
1: yeah look so i've you know yeah as you alluded to i've led this life of being very sensitive to those people who are marginalized. And I had one experience where it was just very, like it was an important influence for me. Um, I was at one of my family members' houses in India and I was with my parents. And there was a young person, and I mean age four, who was part of the help for the family. And you know, as you know, right, a lot of people, who are in a certain uh, economic class, socioeconomic class, do have help, right? It's very common compared to where we are in the United States. And she was attempting to serve us tea. And I think I was like sixth grade, probably, or maybe a little younger, I don't remember exactly. And a four-year-old girl, she had to like get on a stool to get to the sink and serve us tea. And I I looked at my father, I'm like, this is so wrong. Like it just knew it in my bones, in my heart. I was like, yeah. how can this be? And I remember my father was like, I agree. And so he pulled her onto his lap and then of course he got in trouble by the family. So it's it's I don't want to go into all the details because there might be a different view. And I was, res- you know. Only respect. imagine. Yeah, but I just was outraged. And I was also then surprised at my own kind of such clarity of view of like, this is wrong, what is wrong? And then I started thinking about, you know, poverty and the different ca- you know, castes versus class. And it really became an interest of mine. And that led to, you know, pursuing other studies, but just the knowledge of how people can live in poverty and juxtapose with such riches, right? And and they're living kind of side by side, at least we're in Delhi and in India, and and you can see the stark differences, right, and how people present themselves and their clothing and the opportunities and it's so about economic inequality and all the effects of that, right, so that led me later to really study that in my master's degree and been thinking about that all along, right, so that's one of the pieces I support in my career that's really important to me and very mission-driven in that way, but yeah, that was a that was a big influence for
2: me, and also
1: the exposure in general in India and what you see versus yeah. here. so
2: A key seminal moment uh, in your life, clearly. I mean, there's so much there that we could dive into. Um, I, I want to stay somewhat disciplined and focus on you, but uh, just a quick comment: you know, the caste is a complete societal construct. That people pretend or uh be, want to believe that there are religious underpinnings but uh there aren't any you don't see any evidence of this in the upanishads or the vedas um, and in fact sociologically it actually has a, a lineage that's compared to the guilds of medieval europe mm. where uh mm. kind of made sense people would congregate around professional lines and mm. it just uh that made sense but at some point it got bastardized into this hierarchy and um, it, it, it just, uh, you know, and, and while it has been outlawed and there have been some great uh, movements or Harijan's, um, the, the untouchable class, you know, one of their community members becoming a Supreme Court justice, uh, a lot of great things have happened when you go outside of this major cities it's uh still practiced still thought about and even in our generation which is kind of um depressing but it's going to take a long time to really change people's mindset especially in the more rural areas absolutely Um, i just love that you adopted that as a a mission of yours i think that speaks volumes and is really Mm -hmm. incredible and um One question before we leave childhood. Um, Who gave you the nickname Allie? Who changed Sonali to Allie?
1: Yeah, that is a good question. Actually, one that I haven't even, I was thinking about doing a whole video, but here we go, this is it. I don't (laughs) want
2: to steal your thunder, if you'd like to say. Oh
1: no, it's good. (laughs) Yeah, so look, um, growing up in, let's say, um, you know, smaller towns in America often post-industrial, right? And I told you at certain times it's more painful based on the age I was. You know, oftentimes, and this is a really interesting discussion given what's happening in the world now, because of my name, Sonali, which I love, you know, it means gold in Sanskrit, my brother's, you know, means silver, and it was just a nice, you know, a beautiful name. But certain times, based on where I was, and maybe it was the culture or the environment, um, I felt, because of my name, it was a barrier to integration, right? And because people couldn't say it, or maybe when I was younger, they made fun of it. Like I remember, but actually that wasn't a painful period, but I remember being called, like I had a little boyfriend named Charlie and they would call us salami and cheese, you know, but that was actually funny. (laughs) So uh, that was okay. That was not traumatic, but at other points, like I remember when I would move and maybe the seventh grade, me having that name and people not being able to say it made me feel different but also it was a very predominantly white setting that i'm thinking of and so there are multiple barriers and it was really hard then to socially integrate and i felt like my name was one layer it was like the first layer if people can't say your name or they're not trying to say your name it's really hard then to think about becoming friends right away yeah. right or being accepted you don't feel accepted yeah. but i didn't actually so people had nicknames for me there was lee ali sona and then there was a certain point where i'm like i'm just gonna shift and it was it was in high school it was later but i'm like i'm just gonna shift to ali and i liked it and it was actually a it was a community decision within my family like we discussed it yeah we came to it and i told them okay i'm gonna do it now we've been toying around with it for years i'm just gonna switch it and they were like okay we're fully supportive you know you just Call your nickname. If you want to change it, it's fine. They were very open because they wanted us to assimilate. And and my parents were very supportive that way. And so I went with Ali, but I started spelling it A-L-I, right? Because my name is S-O-N-A-L-I. But then people started calling me Ali. And then I got the, wait, that's a boy's name, right? Like yeah. Muhammad Ali. Right. <laughs> so then I'm like, okay, I'm going to spell it phonetically, A-L-L-I-E. That takes care of that no more barriers to entry right. and so so that's how it, it, it manifested and it's funny because then my parents started calling me Ali my indian family calls me Ali I, like i like both names and it's mm-hmm. funny to reconcile the two identities because my legal doctor name is Sanali Sharma right md msc and now i'm kind of going by this moniker dr ali cuz people have the marketing people i work with they're like this is catchy and this is how we know you and it's relatable So it is this funny split, but I'm okay with it, because there's a story behind it, and I think it, the story has significance and meaning.
2: Oh, it absolutely does, and uh, thank you so much for for sharing that, and it's, I mean, I can completely empathize. When I would first say my name, I'd always get back, Steve, did you say Steve?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah.
2: No, it's actually difficult to pronounce, (laughs) something very unique. Um, I was always very jealous of our um, uh, Chinese American friends because, uh, or even Korean American friends, because they often changed their names to something that was Westernized. Like, can't I just be John or Peter like them? (laughs) (laughs) But it had to be suffered through. High school, you mentioned. So you were in North Carolina by that time? I
1: was in two high schools. So I started ninth grade at New Canaan High School, public high school. Uh, And then I went to a high school in North Carolina, independent school. Gotcha. Durham Academy. Junior year, Durham Academy, yeah. Yeah. Middle of junior year.
2: Wow, that's a rough time to make a move, junior year.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and actually, that was one of them that I, for some reason, I mean, I could probably tell you a little bit, but Before ninth grade, I was in South Carolina. That was where I had like a really great experience just for whatever reason. Then I moved and I think I was just down, right? Um, It makes sense and had, you know, just was not feeling great because you just leave the loss of um, the previous life. And then I was in New Canaan High and I I liked it. The the education was phenomenal, but I just didn't like the environment or I don't know. And then when I moved back to the South, uh in junior year it was it was really fun i i don't know i loved it at that time it was just warmer the climate people are very friendly it just it just i loved it so it was actually a, a good move for me and then i ended up staying down in north carolina for school because i was tired of moving so
2: yeah yeah No, yeah. Hey, culturally they are warmer they'll stand a little closer to you they'll ask you more questions they'll want to know about your family and genuinely be interested it's the northeast can be a little bit uh, uh what state your business let's be done with it <laughs>
1: yeah exactly it's just a different environment but you know i think it was more probably just my experience before you know that was so good that colored my next
2: of experience. course yeah, yeah no it's true it's that uh right. contrast and of yeah. uh, of the two that makes one long for or be drawn to to a certain setting. Um, Well, and then you stayed in North Carolina for for college.
1: Yeah, so look, this kind of goes back to that anecdote I told you. Like, Like, of course, my father, who is, you know, a high achiever, puts the Harvard and the Yale applications on my desk. And it's really funny, like, you look at your teenage reactions, but I just was like, I put them aside because I wasn't (laughs) sure that's the way I wanted to go, even though maybe in retrospect, I should have at least tried. But okay. But I, you know, I got into um, a series of schools, some of them Ivy League, but I decided to go public education. Hmm. Um, And I even got into Duke, its rival, which people are like, why did you go to Chapel, UNC Chapel Hill versus Duke? The a big rivalry. But I don't know, there was something at that time. I was like, you know what, this education, I got into the honors program too at UNC. So then I had this like other track, you know, very like small seminar style classes. But so I felt like it was a, you know, maybe an Ivy league education in a public setting, but I felt like at that time I was like, I really, education is so expensive. Look at the price difference. It's $800 a semester at that time mm. to go to UNC. Wow. I do want to go to medical school. So maybe I'll, you know, think about that differently, but I want to try this, you know, I want to get to know this North Carolina society. I want to go to pu- like public I want to be in the public educational system i think it makes sense you know and really like meet the people that live here um so that's what i did and i like i loved it and it was so much fun there, there's a lot of lot more to discuss there um but then you know i i didn't decide to stay in north carolina so it was a great experience of five and a half years to to be there and be in the south and just get to know a different part of our world, you know, and, yeah. uh, that's which
2: was at that point, the longest time you had spent anywhere.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Uh, although although Pitts, yeah, Pittsburgh, we were there for, um, probably a little bit longer. I could okay. tell you the number of years, at least seven and a half years, but different school oh. systems within. So.
2: Oh dear. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That's true. All right. Um, so you said something interesting that i was going to ask you about you actually knew going into college that you were going to pursue medicine
1: so it was in the back of my mind it was also probably an influence from uh, my family my mom especially you know just was plant the seed had been planted but i also had thought about it myself so yeah i started out pre-med but i wasn't sure Mm. um and my I i majored in economics and chemistry yeah So, yeah, that's how I started, and I didn't apply to medical school until I started working um, afterwards, probably a year out uh, from university.
2: Uh, Any other influences other than your mom uh, about thinking about medicine? I mean, there is a humanitarian aspect to that, of course. Yes,
1: yes, there is definitely that. And understanding the individuals, human experience, physical health, mental health, that was a drive of mine for sure, mm. um, and also there's another piece of this. Look, my father paved his way right from zero to where he is, and yeah. there was a strong emphasis on education. And if you're gonna do something, do it with gusto. He didn't say that, but I'm saying I'm interpreting it that way. And if you're gonna go and help people, go. Be a doctor, learn how to learn the whole human system, the whole human body, you know, or if you're gonna be a business professional, do your MBA, you know, there was a huge emphasis on education. So that's probably why I chose that pathway. Um, but I also had you know the interest in the micro, but also the macro. So yeah. it was a way to learn more, you know, and become an expert in the human experience.
2: Yeah, no, that uh, makes complete sense. And it's very sort of thoughtful Approach, kind of uh, a bottom-up approach in many ways which was interesting um, so what was your job after college
1: so I worked for a healthcare consulting firm in Washington DC in the Washington DC area called the Lewin group okay. and I was working in their public policy practice so the policy areas I was working on was HIV AIDS substance abuse mental health okay. um, but it was all uh, private contracts working in the public sector
2: Yes, yeah. well, that that wasn't. Was great. I imagine I was going to say that wasn't by accident I think you were very drawn to the policy part of it
1: absolutely um, and I, I loved it it was such great experience but it was there that I realized okay this macro view is really important but I need the micro and the macro right because it felt too far removed from the actual experience of people and what they go through and that's where it crystallized for me that I to go
2: to medical school it's really phenomenal and i can't stress enough the importance of that viewpoint and i really admire and respect it tremendously because um, i think there are many people who think that they can make decisions at a macro level uh, about healthcare systems and delivery of care Um, but if they've never done it they don't understand how it's done how can they really be empowered to do it well and you had that insight at at a young age and so i think it's just brilliant that you pursued the path you did kudos
1: thanks yeah just talk like the right thing
2: yeah Yeah. yeah um did you have a sense at that point uh before you started medical school that psychiatry would be the area you would gravitate towards
1: so i wasn't sure i really went into medical school with an open mind um and you know when you're in medicine you rotate through all of the um, disciplines and so i just kind of said all right let me just feel what feels right that's the third year in medical school and i loved my psychiatry rotation i also loved OBGYN, I loved working with women's health and you know birth although i decided i didn't want to be a surgeon that's more of a lifestyle choice right because if you're an OBGYN, you're also a surgeon that's right um so it, i yeah, I, I bet I had this like pull towards psychiatry. And then between my third and fourth years of medical school, I went to uh, the London School of Economics to study. Uh, I did a master's degree in social policy and planning. So how a country or society takes care of its people from a social um, social development point of view, let's say. Mm-hmm. and And I felt that psychiatry fit very well with that Mm. you know because i was drawn to uh, things like criminology um conflict mediation behavior right so like how people maybe navigate things around hiv aids right what is their behavior because behavior affects transmission right so so it just felt like a good fit in the end but it it, it emerged slowly and it wasn't one that was so actually so clear it felt like i had to sit down write my pros and cons list and just like think about it and and i went back and forth until i arrived at the decision so Yeah, that's usually how it is, actually. So, <laughs> yeah. Back and forth, back and forth until
2: you're. Exactly. Prepared. Yeah, no, that's a good paradigm for any life decision. So, <laughs> exactly. Um, no, it's, it's really extraordinary. Um, and then just, uh, you know, heading to LSE, which is uh, an, an amazing school and, and kind of the leader in thinking in terms of, you know, economics, political science, and, and policy. Um, it's really, you're, you're with some of the best minds globally. Um, there. And I imagine that uh, was also a great way to parlay into some of the other geographies that you've spent time in um, post-medical school. And so let's, let's chat about that. Walk us through after graduation, you go on these, um, I almost feel like missions.
1: Uh. Yeah, exactly. So it started. um, So while at the LSE, you know, you're just exposed to people from all over the world in your classes as well as, you know, your professors. And out of that, you know, I, I met so many people and one of them was a person who was working on a, a radio, HIV radio program in South Africa. So part of my master's degree, well, was looking at uh, crime in poor communities in South Africa and it led to working on this uh, radio program in South Africa. And what I mean by that is Um, so if you look at public health education, one of the things you need to look at is where do people get their information, right? So in Soweto, where we were working, um, the household, meaning the women who are at home with the children and, you know, the husbands traditionally are the ones working and out, they're listening to soap opera and radio. So, well, that's an opportunity. Why not target that? And then we were working with these script writers to, you know, have the protagonists, you know, um, discover that they're positive for HIV. And then what does that mean? And some education around testing and virus. So that was one of the projects, for example, that I I loved. Um, And then from all of that, though, what I what I had stumbled upon at the LSE was the field of post conflict reconstruction. So how a society Uh, transitions from let's say dictatorship um, to democracy or war and conflict to stability and all of the processes in there and so that just became a place where I'm like well war and conflict is the most pressing public health crisis of our lives right of our times and I want to work I want to work there it feels like that's just people need to work there you know in mental health you can imagine is you know, neglected in places that are low income or post-conflict, right? Often there isn't a mental health system or it's very, you know, minimal. And the trauma is massive, right? So yeah, it makes sense, right? So that's where I, that's where my leanings started in terms of the work I
2: did a little bit later. Wow, fantastic. And so um, where was the first uh, country you headed to?
1: Yeah. So what happened is um, after my Yeah, I did my residency in psychiatry and had a project there. There's so many, like so many stages, but let's (laughs) fast forward. A couple years out of my residency, I received an opportunity to work for a Dutch NGO uh, who's focused on post conflict mental health. So it was sort of like, oh wow, this is amazing. And I I knew of their work and I knew the director. And so I did that for two years. Uh, So I lived out of uh, the Netherlands and then. Uh, was my mission was to work on the integration of mental health in primary care, and I was assigned to Afghanistan and Burundi. Wow. So, and that was you know fantastic work on a country level, all the way down to you know the district level with the provision of services. And that led me to you know work with some WHO, some of the WHO team in mental health. And I became after that a WHO consultant on several projects, and uh, specifically their MH Gap project or a trainer like training primary care providers um, to provide mental health services in their primary care settings and i was in libya for a little bit i was in ethiopia um, working with somali providers Um, yeah there's and i was in previously i was in nepal for a different project working in the east in a refugee camp so yeah a lot of different um, experiences And then after that, I came to the Bronx, I came back to New York, but I worked up in the South Bronx for a while and then uh, more closer to the zoo in the Bronx and the city. So it's been a, it's just been an evolving pathway, but every step has felt like the right next step. And there's been a lot of opportunities. And so in a way, it's funny. And I'm very aware of this, like that, if you look at the earlier part of my life, which is moving around every two years, and then you look at my career, it's still kind of, moving right yeah, but yeah. I also was in mind was like where am I gonna put my roots down to right, right? that's always been a question too right. well, this is not quite right so let's you know as things evolve let's take other opportunities so I always took the risk whereas right. maybe other people would be more risk averse right. right and stay somewhere for 30 years which I re- totally respect right. but I felt like I I was learning also like this was part of my field experience right to have these global experiences and then to run a psychiatric emergency room. In the South Bronx and then to run a primary care like the integrated team primary care in the Bronx and then I uh, ran a city program for a while in mental health. So it's been a fantastic like set of experiences so invaluable. And now I have two young kids and that's my practice and running these two podcasts.
2: Right, so, right.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm a lifelong student and I am, you know, also taking opportunities, you know, and, and jumping on them when they come.
2: So, Which is just superb. And um, I mean, I just um, you've continued to be in service of marginalized communities, which is is extraordinary. Um, and, uh, I imagine just, uh, being on the ground in some of these locations, um, like what were those experiences like? did you feel worried about your, your, your person or was it enthralling to be with these other, uh, groups where you had to learn cultural, uh, nuance? Love to hear about that.
1: Look, so one of the things I love is Delving into a new environment and a new culture, probably because I have that knowledge of my own culture, right, both living in the United States, my family in India, but also we traveled so much at the heels of my parents, they taught us to Understand different cultures and respect cross cultural differences and, you know, be comfortable in every single person's house, no matter what the socioeconomic level was right. So that's how we were raised. Um, But I Yeah, I I, I love it. So for example, even the approach to the work we did at this Dutch NGO, you know, I didn't go there blindly. So for example, before I went to Burundi, you know, there was an anthropologist in house, so there were already context analyses and we had to learn about the region, the supports, the infrastructure the resources like what already exists on the ground in terms of the health infrastructure and also like uh, cultural idioms of distress. So we, I was doing this study and I I can send it to you, but just looking at how people express distress, but in their language and in their culture. And then how do you back translate and how do you pair that to like our Western knowledge? So I wasn't taking like our Western view and like imposing it, Mm -hmm. right. It's really like understanding the culture and how would people, identify because mm. the problems in their society, because they know, right? If you talk to people on the ground, they can describe to you what probably is marijuana abuse, right? But they may have a different way of talking about it or anxiety or trauma. Mm. So, so yeah, that's been... And that resonated with me because that was already my intrinsic way to do it. Like, learn, don't assume, you know, understand your biases when you go into somewhere, somewhere else that's not your culture. So, um, yeah, so for example, um, I'm just going to throw out one, Libya. So I was a trainer there and I just, wow, like what a fantastic culture. I, you know, hadn't had much exposure, obviously, and not many of us have, but being on the ground, I just was so impressed by the, the means of expression, right? And and also surprised by like I had women and men in the same room and how strong the women were and they were all integrated and intellectually engaged, but powerful like they did not Stay silent in the face of some Western person coming in. Right. But I, I also don't look super Western. So maybe like I look like them. So maybe there was a comfort level, but there was just this egalitarianism and this strength of like academic pursuit that I love. That was just one Contrast to, let's say, another environment in Afghanistan where I was, right, where the gender divide is so different than what I just described, and the way people express themselves, I had to pull out of people, and especially the women. I'm very mindful of those differences. You know, I just want to make sure everyone has a chance to speak, but there are differences that you also have to respect um, and know how to navigate, and. One of the things I loved working with the various teams that I've worked with is that when we do a training in a different culture, we we debrief, you know, the first day. What are we seeing? What are we learning? What's coming up as a challenge? What's culture? And then how do we respectfully respond, but in a way that like we ensure that people learn what they need to learn. You know, so it's been. I love that piece. It's just it's been great. absolutely fascinating, yeah. and I miss that actually. So.
2: Oh, I can only imagine. It sounds yeah. very <clears throat> intoxicating, even uh, just yeah. be able to to do that type of work. Um, and have you been able to stay in touch and and get a sense that uh, the changes that you've implemented have been having a positive impact and effect? Oh,
1: you know, it's so interesting. So. The, both of the contexts in which I work, con, uh, I mean, post conflict in theory, but both more like acute conflict at times. So I tried to follow up after, and I've kept in touch with especially one of the teams. Um, and I would say, like, our goal was to be a catalyst for change, right? So to not to have the like the local environment depend on the person from the outside. That doesn't make sense. Right. But to actually teach, right? So I th- I don't think that knowledge goes away, but it's the sustaining of the knowledge over time that I sort of lost touch with as you know, yeah. withdrew from the project. But I think at least it's the start of some mental health infrastructure, right? That hadn't yeah. been there before. Exactly. So but I yeah, I don't know what's happened like now so many years out.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Um, Loved hearing about all these experiences. And I I didn't mean to gloss over your uh, residency experiences. Um, A question that I had when I was going through your background was, um, did you at any point feel like um, you would just sort of uh, be a psychiatrist and settle in, in some city in the U.S., um, but I got the answer that, uh, no, the pool was really in the policy side, but just to to share with the audience, um, you did a portion um, in, on the East Coast and a portion in San Francisco at UCSF, uh, and then was it immediately after that you worked at Columbia for over two years? Yeah,
1: so my, so we did my, Internship, which is the first year of training at UCSF. And then I did my residency, which is two, three, four years um, at Cornell. And then after that, I went to Columbia. I was an emergency psychiatrist, but I also started my private practice right away. And I started doing some global work on the side. And um, that seemed to be like a nice, like the way I, yeah, I, I configured it, you know, psychiatry is very flexible and you can have part-time jobs and sort of like piecemeal you know a schedule together that works and that's the beauty of this field so that's what i did and um, i loved it you know it just gave me variety so outpatient setting and then emergency setting right which is two ends of the spectrum and then policy projects and then that led to that um, dutch ngo experience and the global humanitarian experience
2: That's fantastic. And you've stayed very active and busy with a number of other projects uh, including Thrive New York City.
1: That so that was the city program where I was director of a program called the Mental Health Service Corps. Mm -hmm. And that I left in 2000 after my daughter, six months after my daughter was born. And that was my second child. So I just, you know, it's a lot to run a program and I had the most incredible experience. But with two kids, I had to make a decision, which was a very tough decision actually to do. So, you know, but family comes first.
2: Yeah. And and
1: I'll tell you what, my son during, let's see, I guess it was after my daughter was born, when I went back to work, I mean, it's just like (laughs) so busy. And my son kept saying in those six months, I lost my mama, (laughs) I was like, oh, I was heartbroken. And he said it consistently for three to four months. I was like, okay, this is the right decision.
2: That's a yeah. sign. Yeah. I
1: know.
2: Wow. And I was trying
1: to be as present as possible, of course, but
2: of course, I was like, but laptop,
1: night, day, weekend, and you know, just always there's a lot going
2: on. So. Yeah. yeah, it's incredibly challenging. Well, I admire the decision you made. Um, so many <laughs> parts of the world uh, need you desperately, but uh, children- well, you know, And then
1: just to put this out there, like the weird irony, like, I, it's so strange. Like, it's like, I, I or a lot of women had children later, so I, my career peaked yeah. and then I'm having children. And to be very honest, I don't know if these leadership positions are compatible with the way I wanted to be with my sure.
2: children. Of
1: course. You know, so, and that's a choice. And, and a lot of women take issue with that, right? Or it's a difficult conflict and others are like, I, I know which side I'm gonna go with.
0: Yeah. You
1: yeah. know, for me, it was a little bit of a struggle, but I made the decision that was yeah, right for
2: so. yeah no it's 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 hard and ultimately it is a challenge and a choice yeah. um i can empathize with that mm-hmm. um let's talk a little bit about um how your amazing work on the policy policy side was was phenomenal and engaging and you loved it but there were some frustrations and that's part of the reason why you've reached this point where you still want to be an advocate for mental health but you're kind of thinking about what's the best way to approach it so share with us about that.
1: Yeah. So look, I worked in environments where there's a lot of talk about innovation. Mm-hmm. And in those environment in those environments, I found it difficult to innovate. Like I was focused obviously on efficiency and improving quality of care, thinking about access to care, education of the, let's say, the providers to provide the best quality education to the, the public. Um, but I sometimes I felt like the systems in which I worked, it was a revolving door. Like, what are we really doing? Are we really, what? or what more do we need? And I wasn't able to think about innovation in those positions I was in, or there were bureaucratic barriers, right, to innovation. Because innovation requires a little bit of freedom of thought, right? And not huge regulatory burdens of that institution, right? I mean, of course you can work within an institution. and. But, but okay, that aside, so, you know, I started thinking, all right, I still, I'm working in the public sector, I'm working at 200%, I'm putting my, like, heart and soul into this, but what, in terms of public health, what is the world getting out of this, you know, okay, there's, what am I getting out of this, I was, I was satisfied intellectually, but also drained in terms of energy, and, and then I was like, this is not working, <laughs> you know, so, excuse me, let me have a sip of water. Hang on one second. Sure, of course. And so in thinking about going back to my practice and I love my practice, but it's a different part of my mission, right? It's still helping with mental health, but then it doesn't work on that policy level, right? Of working with the, the most marginalized. So that's why I started thinking, well, how do I use my voice? to talk about mental health, going back to that Cheetah presentation, (laughs) like I can speak and I know how to do this and I think I'm engaging or I hope I'm engaging.
2: You are, we'll attest to it.
1: Okay, thanks, yeah, thanks. So how do I use that to talk about mental health and to think about public health promotion, right, which is education for the masses? and that led me to these two podcasts and it was really just a series of coincidences actually but with an intention set and then all of a sudden things come actually come up so i can tell you a little bit about that but last year while i was thinking about this um i was at a dinner party of really good friends of mine sitting across from uh this guy named max and talking about yeah i just left this big job and now i'm gonna like talk about mental health and reinvent the way i do this and he was like he was perked, his ears were perked, and then he was like you know like let's talk more about this and then he and he's really um basically he's an expert in um social media Mm -hmm. and how to think about marketing someone in that way or how to put yourself out there in that platform and that was a new world to me like i didn't know so anyway we met a few times and i met his girlfriend who uh he's a model but he's also a business person and his girlfriend is a a dutch model victoria's secret model her name is son of loot and they introduced me through like different uh meetings to someone named bridget malcolm who's now my co-host on model mentality and we had just met so many times I was like running informal groups on rooftops in Brooklyn talking about modeling and mental health because they were like we need help and this is not being addressed and I'm like hey I'm happy to talk about this because mental health is universal and it affects everyone and if you feel like it's an unmet need let's discuss this right because it's yeah I mean that's often the case right it's not discussed or there's so much stigma around it or there isn't a platform to do so so in any case we Bridge and I met a couple of times in last year. We created Model Mentality, which was supposed to launch in March 2020. COVID hit. We're like, okay, let's go on pause. We had like PR on board and this big launch planned and everything. And so we stopped. And then then I was like, all right, but I have these podcast skills. (laughs) So (laughs) let's talk about COVID. And I was thinking, you know, having done that post-conflict work, there is value and i'd studied like truth commissions and the truth and reconciliation process nice. Nice. way back when there is so much value in collective healing at through telling people's stories so that was my initial thought you know how do i capture what's going on in real time we were in crisis mode back in march but you know already i can see like down the road what's going to happen well health crisis, I knew it was there to stay. You can just see, you know, <laughs> what's going on. And, and therefore, we're not working. And therefore, people are gonna lose their jobs and kids are at home. I mean, we could just, I just started imagining all things and businesses are gonna close and people are gonna be impacted in so many ways that ultimately will affect their mental health and their health, right? Those are called the social determinants of health, all the pillars of our lives. Housing, health insurance, job, Relationships, all the things that determine our mental health, right? So, so I started this podcast, but in a in a fury, kind of like what you described with your podcast. But like <laughs> I have to do this, and I don't have the mission is like broad, but I'm gonna do this. And I had some people helping me, and Bridget Malcolm edited almost all of my episodes, which was so cool because she was in Australia, and we just we did it. And I started turning out five episodes a week, starting wow. in April. Yeah. And I had so much content and I was trying to do 10 to 15 minute um, podcasts because I knew that people also didn't have the bandwidth. Uh, And we did a lot of video. I did some audio only, and that's how it started. And now I've done 32 episodes. I also slowed it down though, because we got out of the acute phase and, uh, and I started to slow down and now I'm reflecting on what I've done. And that's the next phase to sort of, narrow things a little bit and pick up on the themes that have come up so strongly and then we also i just felt like also you know what mental health is top of mind right now let's release a curated series of episodes of model mentality but let's be very sensitive in how we frame it Mm
0: -hmm. and how
1: we do it because it's not just about talking about pop culture and something that's not relevant mental health is relevant and but how do we frame it in a way where we can reach a lot of people. So so that's where I am. And uh, it's been a lot of work, uh, but it's been so much fun. And I, I love doing these podcasts and we'll see where it goes. And so that's where I am at the moment.
2: Sounds like you found your uh, niche, your home. And it's just a matter of, um, you know, you have the slab of marble, you're just sculpting it into the right shape.
1: That's beautiful. Yeah, exactly. And then what the exact shape is, it's a little bit amorphous right now, but it's definitely starting to form.
2: So. Yeah, yeah, well, um, there's no doubt given all that you've accomplished in your life and your career that you'll get there and it'll be stunning when you do. Uh, figure that out, so I for one, am very much looking forward to uh subscribing to all the content you put out there and um and staying informed with it i think um you know mental health needs strong advocates uh like you um and and I'm just uh so fortunate we've had a number of great uh people on the podcast um who are proponents of changing the stigma that surrounds it, the delivery mechanism of mental health care. And, um, so I, I think this is phenomenal. It's very of the moment. And, um, I just, uh, I wish you decibels. <laughs>
1: thank you so much, Asim. And yeah. yeah, I appreciate also what you're doing, but that's a whole nother podcast.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Um, Ali, this has been so phenomenal. Thank you for your candid shares, your very thoughtful reflections on your life. Um, really just amazed with all you're doing and, um, look forward to seeing the phenomenal results that come.
1: It was a nice journey back. I haven't done that actually in in a long time to pull it all together. Um, But no, I appreciate your thoughtfulness and, you know, the way you went back to childhood, to the beginning, to the (laughs) present. I think there's, again, power in hearing people's stories and understanding their motivations and why they do what they do. So I appreciate you you know, offering me the chance to do that. It's really, it's really nice to do. So. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, thanks for saying that. It, for me, it was a great pleasure. I learned a tremendous amount and I'm definitely inspired and can't wait to share those with my daughter, her peers. And like, look at this amazing woman, all that she's accomplished. <laughs> it started with the fifth five-year-old uh, <laughs> cheetah. cheetah admirer. <laughs> if you
1: hear so that was some of the video content we have for model mentality, you'll hear, we talk about Virginia and I asked our guests, who is your spirit animal? I'm oh. um, always like cheetah, and now my kids are like cheetah. <laughs> Both of them, <laughs> them
2: become a family you. thing now. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, great. Ali, right. thank you so
0: much.
1: Thank you so
2: much.
0: Achieve is recorded at Subtractive and Hangar Eight at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by hennedy